I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Today, we have with us Chris Saliza, the Washington Post reporter, blogger, and social media connoisseur. He's known for his clever and insightful commentary. He was named one of Washingtonians' top journalists in 2009, where he was described as the model of what the next generation of Washington reporter will look like. He started his career with the Cook Political Report. After that, roll call. After joining the Washington Post, he was the first White House correspondent of a major news source to do online work. He also launched the widely popular web blog, The Fix, which focuses on American electoral politics. It appe- he appears on television as a political analyst for MSNBC. To round out his resume, just this September, he launched the Sequiza, the <laughs> Fix podcast, a news quiz show podcast with the Washington Post. Uh, Chris, we're delighted to have you, and this shows just how magnanimous we are here because we're having one of our competitors on. Uh, you have a podcast. We have a podcast. Uh, there was a time when I was 13 or 14 years old where I thought, I will have made it in life if Bob Schieffer says the word sequiza. <laughs> so I feel like I've really accomplished <laughs> something there. Thank you I'm for st- having me. I'm still working on long-time, that. <laughs> long-time admirer. Well, it's great to have you, Chris. Uh, so... You know, we're just coming to know about this whole business of the podcast, yes. which all of a sudden is a very important part of the uh, uh, journalism landscape. I mean, five years ago, people said, if you're going to do something on the web, do it short. People don't want long. Now we're finding they want long. First of all, to your point, Bob, I think <laughs> conventional wisdom about what people want as it relates to content via the Internet, however that's delivered, changes about every 20 minutes. I, I mean, I've now been at the Post for 10 years, and I can remember literally diametrically opposed advice being given to me. We need to do this. And then six months later, no, it's this. So I, I, I'm always hesitant when people say, we know what they want because we're not sure what they want. It's an evolving thing. Um, I think what you found – um, is that what's happening in content and people uh, consuming content is what's happened in the country more broadly economically. Okay, so economically what we know is uh, the rich have gotten richer, the the poor have gotten poorer, the middle class is, is hard to define and, and less robust certainly than it, it was 25 years ago, 50 years ago. I think content is like the, the same thing. You have short is very appealing, short and pithy and funny and smart, whether that's video or audio or or the written word. And we've learned really long can be appealing. Sites like Long Reads, podcasts that go for an hour and 25 minutes, two hours. Uh, The danger zone, I think, for content now is that middle space. For uh, print journalism, it's 25-inch stories, stories that are about 800 words, 800 to 1,000. 
people tend not to read them. They're willing to invest in something long if they like it, right? If it's a topic they're interested in, if it's a voice like yours that they're interested in, hopefully if it's a voice like mine that they're interested in, they'll invest in long. Short's easy. You get it on social media. You look at it. It's a vine that makes you laugh. It's a BuzzFeed list. It's something like the middle. Bob Schieffer and Chris Saliza sat down today. The topics discussed were there's so much less interest in that. And I think that's where we've spent a lot of time journalistically over the years is that middle ground. And that middle ground, I feel like, is eroding out. and We need to change uh, for that reason. You know, uh, it reminds me so much of what Leslie Moonves, who is the uh, chairman of the yes. CBS Corporation. People were talking about, you know, how do we do stuff for the web and so forth. And he once said, look, if it's not good on the big screen, it's not good on yep. the little stream. And what he said was, it is just what you're talking about. It is about content. If it's good, people are going to read it. They're going to listen to it. If it's not good, they're going to turn the page. That's exactly it. People always say to me, like, what's the secret to uh, succeeding on the Internet? And it's like it's the same secret that was the key to your career and the key to anyone's career who succeeds in the content business. You, you make the content better than the content being offered by your rivals. Like, there, It's not – it's it's in many ways so much has changed in journalism, but really nothing at the core of it has changed, which is it has to be better reporting, better analysis, you know, and then the thing that has changed is you have to make sure that you are delivering it to people in a much more proactive way. It used to be a passive way in which people consume news. You either watched it uh, at night or you got your local paper that morning and read it. Now people are actively seeking news out from a million different sources. So you have to go out and push it to them. But good doesn't change. That's why I like journalism. It's, a, it, it's largely a meritocracy. If you're you know, good at it and you produce good and interesting things, you tend to do well. News is what is relevant to people's lives. That's that's my rule. Right. And if they don't know it's relevant, the journalist's role is to tell them why it's relevant. Right. It seems to me that all of what we do comes down to that. And I think we need to get out of something that we still do some of, not as much, the dutiful reporting. Like, well, I guess I'll do this 20 and so don't, don't do it. Because if you feel it's dutiful, then the user, reader, viewer, watcher will feel it's dutiful. If you can't find an angle to make it revealing, uh, interesting, relevant to someone's life, then don't do it. Doesn't doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but if you can't do it, then you should take a pass on it. I want to talk about your blog, The sure. Fix. It's not just popular. It's, it's wildly popular. Um, you're receiving, and I want to hear these numbers from you. Sure. Uh, how many hits, so, unique visitors? How do you measure how many people see this? Well, thing? I measure it in a lot of ways when it's going well and less ways when it's not going well. Um, <laughs> that um, reminds me of yeah, industry. I'm like somewhat Exactly with. right. Well, what if we slice and dice this quarter hour? Um, it right now has been, uh, I started it in 2006 by myself uh, at a time when most um, news organizations major didn't have anything like this. So the first three or four years, I always say, if we had the analytics to measure traffic that we have now, they would have gotten rid of it a long time ago because it didn't do anything then. It was years before it did anything. Uh, last week, obviously helped by the, the first presidential debate, we did seven and a half million unique visitors. Um, we, uh, we in the month of July, busy month politically, both conventions, we, and that's myself as well as a, man, a person who edits the day-to-day -day copy and four other reporters, uh, got more traffic than all of Politico. Um, so it, it's, 
The traffic uh, and the, the, the attention via the web is a means to an end, right? It's not an end in and of itself. I always say the traffic is wonderful. It allows us to do things. It gives, you know, it lets us build, try things. But, but in the end, traffic is just traffic. If you can't, it, the reason that we are getting it, I hope, is because we're doing interesting, fresh angles in the news cycle on things. So the traffic is a byproduct of that. And traffic means it's not an end in and of itself. You have to figure out, okay, well, we got this traffic. Now, can we experiment? Can, what, what can we do with it? Because, you know, I think too much of journalism right now is focused on the, just the raw number. To me, the engagement is more important. How long are people staying on the, on the fix? Well, How, explain that yeah. to me. What is a unique visitor? Uh, someone who, uh, if you, Bob Schieffer, go to The Fix and read something, you are a unique visitor. Page views would be you come and you click on five things on The Fix, or you click through a bunch of articles. So that the page view number is always going to be bigger than the unique visitor number. Uh, unique visitors is, I think, increasingly more important because it's the number of people who are coming, right? Just uh, rawly. You figure if they come, you can get them to read more stuff over time. I actually think the most important metric that we don't focus enough on is time on site. This is the same. I mean, this is like um, the number of people who watch 18 minutes of the evening news versus the number of people who watch one minute. I would argue that the 18 minutes is much more important in the environment we live in now, which is I'm not sure you need vast, broad Support. Look, there's 320 million people in this country. The fact that seven and a half million read a piece of my content, it's wonderful, but it's a drop in the bucket. There's still a lot of people who don't have any clue about what we do. But you can take that seven and a half million people and say over time, hey, what if we – would you want this podcast? Would you want if Chris did a web show? Would you be interested in paying $1.99 to stream that? In terms of a business model, depth of commitment, I think, is much more important than breadth of commitment at this point. So, I, again, the metrics shift so much of what's important that I think it's hard. The, the big numbers are easy to be attracted to. Let, let's bring in Andrew yes, Schwartz sir. of CSIS, who is a connoisseur of <laughs> the web and digital sure. traffic. Thank you, Bob. And Chris, thanks for being here. Um, as you mentioned, you have some terrific reporters on your staff at The Fix. One of them, we have to give a shout out to Amber Phillips, who is an alumni of the Schieffer School of Journalism. Yes, She's done fantastic work. She writes the, the newsletter, The Five Minute Fix. And just a quick brag on Amber, we started that with 25,000 subscribers off of our various lists, and then last year she's built it to 80,000 subscribers. So, and I, I would love to tell you I have anything to do with it. I don't. That, that is her and a woman named Terry Rupar, who's our digital editor for National, who handle all that, and they do a great job. Again, the theory being give people the news that you want them to use where they want it. Some people, newsletters, you want to talk about podcasts and newsletters are the two hottest things in journalism. Uh, right now, which is fascinating to me because newsletters, it's everything that's old is new again. Ten years ago, newsletters were a, a big deal. And now they're sort of coming back into vogue. Well, you know, the late David Carr of the time said it's so old, it's new. Yep. And, and it works because busy people like to get curated content that's sent to their you know inbox that they can absolutely use. And this is what Bob was talking about, the sort of everything, the, the, the content matters. and the, There's nothing new under the sun here. Why did you succeed, Bob? Why did any, any journalist succeed? People trusted you to guide them through the noise, right? There's so much. There's more now, but there's always been a lot. So much noise, so much 
just out there, out there, out there. And they don't have, they don't do it like me or you full time every day, right? They have 15 minutes, 20 minutes, five minutes, and they need to be able to go to people who they know they will get it straightforward, honest, with analysis in it. Nothing has changed there. That, that's the same thing and you know as always. when we first at CBS News began to understand what our new role was mm-hmm. uh, in in uh, in this new journalistic landscape was on 9/11 when we had to correct mistakes that other people were making and as you know Chris in in journalism traditionally if your organization makes a mistake you correct it if somebody else does you ignore it yep but we found out on 9-11 that if we didn't correct some of this stuff that was getting out there, another plane headed to yep. the Sears Tower in Chicago, if we didn't correct that immediately, we ran the risk of setting off pandemonium and, and, and just mass hysteria. Our job now, I think more and more, we talk about fact-checking in these mm-hmm. debates, our job more and more is just fact-checking news in general. Yeah, and I think the b- both the big brands like the CBSs of the world and the smaller brands like the Fixes of the world, your brand is both more important now than ever because there are so many options that you need to be able to distinguish yourself as a trusted source and your and all brands are more tenuous than ever because of the 24-hour news cycle and the way in which things work. I always say to my wife, I this is my job today if I tweet something really stupid, which I'm not planning to do, uh, but, you know, that could be it for me. You know, I mean, like, y- y- you have to under... If you, you tweet something under- really stupid, it could also propel you to the presidency of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So I'm not running currently, but I could think about it. But, I mean, there is there is a tenuousness of brand stability at a time in which your ability to be a reliable brand is coin of the realm stuff. I mean, it's 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 difficult. I mean, it's it's a high wire act, I feel like. Let's talk about this campaign. Huh. I mean, I won't even ask you the question, have you ever seen anything like this? Because no, have I know you? you haven't. Have no, you? no. I mean, I haven't, but I... I no. I no. mean, I, there, there is... There is no, and I've spent a lot of time thinking and reading about this, but obviously I haven't seen every campaign ever, but there is no analog for what Trump has done uh, in the uh, winning the Republican primary. There just isn't one. People say, oh, I can't believe the media didn't see it coming, to which I say, fine, I'm, I'm not immune to criticism. There was no way to see it coming. Nothing we know about how this works would have predicted this person being the nominee. Now, that means we have to analyze how this works, which is a very fair conversation now. But this idea that like everybody saw Donald Trump coming a year afterward. No one saw him coming because there was no way to see him coming. It was uh, he is sui generis in that way. I mean, he 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 literally birthed himself against all rules that we know about. So how do you think he did it? Um, Uniqueness of his celebrity uh, which is vast. I, I think he is more famous today than he was a year ago, but a year ago he was very famous. He could go to most places in the world and be recognized. Um, and celebrity, we know now, it is sort of cachet for many people. It, it almost doesn't matter why you're famous. It's just that you're famous. I, I think in the early going, the people who went to his rally, rallies, it was more just curiosity. He hadn't outlined anything he believed. So it, it, it's uh, with the possible exception of the wall and immigration. But 
by and large, most of these people who are showing up to their, these rallies had no clue who he was. Uh, other than this is a guy I've seen on TV and I like seeing people on TV. I'm sure you walk through an airport and you get stopped a billion times because people recognize you. Um, he had that. Then he had the piece we didn't account for as much, which is this huge social media following by which he could – uh, politicians have been trying to end run the mainstream media forever. They just have more tools to do it now. Obama uh, really pioneered in that regard, much to my chagrin, but pioneered in end running the, what they would call the media filter, what I would call like the, the fourth estate. Um, Trump is able to do that even more directly with his Twitter feed, drive news uh, stories, drive narratives, fact check the fact checking, um, create an entire separate reality that his supporters uh, believed always existed and he was sort of at the top of. I mean, it's remarkable. His message, the, that populist message, um, these people are doing things not only that screw you, but they're doing that those things on purpose to feather their own nest is very powerful. I always say you have to separate with him that powerful message and the messenger who's obviously, this is not breaking news, deeply flawed to carry that message. Well, you know, Chris, you talk about brand, and of course, Trump has a unique brand. You talk about brand when it comes to the Washington Post, when it comes to sub-brands within the Washington Post, like The Fix, like Power Post 202. Power Post and 202 and The Fix have really driven a lot of traffic in terms of the Post's readership, propelling the Post forward as one of those news outlets that really leads in terms of the unique visitor. You created The Fix, and something's really. In- I read something really interesting about The Fix the other day that one of your reporters, uh, Philip Bump, wrote. He's, Love him, he's by the, the way. He's, he's a terrific. Really wonderful. I, I think the future of journalism. And an analyst like of polls. Can and, build and, things. Used to work for Adobe. Can build charts, maps. He built this amazing thing that pulls in all the latest polls and updates an electoral map. I mean, like it's just, in, real, in real time. Think, in real time. Things that I just don't uh, understand. I mean, I'm 40. I don't feel like I'm like. Oh, this internet thing, you know, but like he can do things that I just, it, it, they amaze me. He created a word that I saw the other day called nowish. We know nowish what the polls say because he's really in that moment so quickly. But he wrote the other day in your in your space in the fix, we've entered a phase of the presidential contest in this social media powered age when a mind boggling percentage of Americans demand of everyone around them new information about the likely outcome, even when it's obvious that nothing has actually Actually changed. This is the moment for which the fix was created. Yeah. What did he mean by that? Um, when we started the fix, this was pre-Twitter. This was pre-Vine, pre-Tumblr. Of any, you know, I mean, this is pre many of the things that now govern politics. I mean, I still remember in the 2008 campaign, uh, I was in Denver. Uh, at the uh, Democratic convention, and someone was like, you should try this Twitter thing. It might be fun. We were just looking for alternate ways to tell stories because uh, the, the the speeches were happening at night, and obviously we had Dan Balls and some of our, our big-name reporters writing the, like, Barack Obama accepted the Democratic nomination, you know, the sort of big lead-all in our jargon in our business stories. I didn't really want to recreate that, and they weren't, like, asking me to write that story with them. So I was trying to figure out ways around – and Twitter was a way to do something different than what we were doing, complementary. Um, technology has moved and people's consumption habits have moved that things like The Fix, lucky for, for us, have become so central in that 
uh, it used to be that you would uh, some uh, the debate would happen. The story in the next day's paper would be uh, Tim Kaine and uh, uh, Mike Pence debated, and you know they they parried the attack, whatever you know the whole the, the language there. And then the following day, we would do a big takeout analysis piece: like who helped one another, who hurt one another, right? Um, what's happened now, and I've noticed this over the last five years or so, picking up rapidly. And I'll give you I'll give you a, an anecdote from this week that'll that'll inform it. People want their news and their analysis simultaneously now. They, there's no break. Um, in some ways, they get their news, many of them. Not everybody, though. I mean, look, I, th- this is our m- my target audience, but not the target audience of the world. They get their news from Twitter. They watch the debate. They look on Twitter. When it ends, they want someone to tell them, like, I thought this was good and I thought this was bad. So I write something after every debate of winners and losers, who did well, who did poorly. It, and I try, hopefully, to try to make it somewhat fun because in a debate of two people, if you just do one winner and one loser, it's not terribly uh, interesting. That piece for the last two years on big events has consistently outperformed the lead-all news piece saying these two people debated and, and this is what happened. Now, that piece has no background in it. It basically says, I watched the vice presidential debate with a URL to our main story, linking to our main story. Here's who I thought did well and, 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 and poorly. That's it. I mean, there's no – but people want that. People want – instant analysis. Now, I try not to make it, I think people equate instant analysis with garbage. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to think we're offering something more than that, uh, which is why it's sustained for a decade and why it's done well. But but I think that that changed from news and then I'll wait a day and then, okay, I'm ready for my analysis now. Like I'll have, to have a pl- palate cleanser, then my analysis. There, I, I can tell you from web trends and traffic, there's no uh, time in between those two. In fact, I think people oftentimes a news event ends and they immediately want the analysis. They don't even necessarily want to read about that which they just watched. Well, I think uh, <clears throat> that goes to the uh, success of what I call the validation channels. Yeah. Uh, on cable, this where is a dangerous part of what I'm talking about, uh, where people are not often looking for news; they're looking for validation of their 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 own preconceived notion Absolutely. and and you know they find it and and i used to people used to talk to me about is the media biased as they do to you well of course. you know we we all know about that and that's you know the oldest charge and all of that but my response now is look you can find you can find the news served up any way you like it. It's like going into a restaurant and saying, do I want scrambled eggs or I want them over easy? That's right. You can find somebody that'll do it just the way you want it, and, and people tend to like that. Which is a challenge for someone like me. Um, because, well, well, for I, someone like for me. all of us. Yeah. Um, because increasingly, and it's not just the, the media gets blamed for this a little bit, but the, the truth of the matter is if you look over the last 10 or 15 years, there is a self-sort happening in the country. People are moving, staying put based on socioeconomics, based on whatever. But the point is, is you tend to now live, work, uh, entertain with and around people who agree with you. Now, add on top of that, to your point, Bob, 
siloing of the media, which is you can never leave the careful comforts that you were always right in your opinion, right? Because there's we've got a we've got a feed for that. You never need to be confronted with a person that you respect and think is smart who disagrees with you. Um, I always say that the, the last ten to fifteen years for me is the the death of the phrase "reasonable people can disagree." Uh, that is not the case, unfortunately, as it relates to politics. That, that's the only world I know well enough. Uh, or disagree without being disagreeable. That's another one. You know, unfortunately, at this point, because of that siloing of the media, because of the self-sort, because this idea you never run into anyone who disagrees with you, people who do disagree with you are cast as at best dumb. Th- that, that's the best possible read. And at worst, maliciously intended purposefully misunderstanding or misreading situations for their own partisan benefit, which is a, you know, a depressing conversation about the state of our democracy. Well, let me tell you, it's not just the siloing of, of information like that. It's the siloing of our society. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the things I always loved about living in Washington when we first came here you know, I basically always covered politics, whatever the beat I was on. And uh, we would have Republicans over and Democrats over uh, for dinner. They would all know one another. Their wives knew one another. Uh, their kids all went to school together. And, it, it, you know, you would have these great discussions where somebody would be on one side and somebody would be on the other. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Chris, but now— they don't like to come to the same parties. Nope. They don't want the folks back home they don't to think with one another. that they're they're consorting with the enemy. They really don't know each other anymore because they're spending all their time back home because they have to to raise money. The families don't live here. And what used to be these great across-the-aisle relationships is now an argument among strangers. And I don't care what the subject is, when you're arguing with somebody you don't know, it's different than when it's you're arguing with someone that you do know. And to- that's totally part of right. what's going wrong here. Absolutely. And it again, it's siloing. I mean, And I think this is a longer, nerdier conversation about the way in which we elect people to Congress. But, but what you've also seen is a, a disincentivizing of any work across the aisle. Uh, to your point, it's like it's not even as though they're strangers, which they are. But if they wanted to get to know one another, if a Republican member of Congress from Oklahoma went to dinner with Nancy Pelosi, what are, maybe they have common cause on an issue that has that's really not partisan, whatever it is, funding for medical research. That would be an issue. That person would have to be aware of not being photographed with Nancy Pelosi or a story not being written that they – and again, it could be – their child experienced a difficult thing and, and she has some – it has nothing to do with anything like that. So we are disincentivizing it. We are What we are incentivizing is running to your extreme right or your extreme left because of the way we draw the, the lines in this country. The, 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 the congressional lines in this country are drawn to elect uh, people that are – occupy the, the very tips of the, of the two parties. You have no incentive when that is the case to do anything other than play to the people who are on those ends. Um, and people always say, like, why can't they get anything done? They don't get anything done because well, the people who elect them don't want them to get anything done. Don't you think that's reflected in the political dialogue we're yes. having in these debates that we're having? I mean, what is the one thing that's missing from all the well, the two debates that we've seen so far, one, one with the uh, – 
presidential candidates and and the the number twos. It basically is you don't hear anybody talk about reaching across the no, aisle. Civility. You yeah. don't talk hear anybody talking about, look, I can't do this by myself. We've got to find a coalition. And how do you break this gridlock in Washington? There is absolutely zero discussion of that. And I predict there will be zero discussion as we go on through to the next. And year. look at look at, you know, Barack Obama elected in a landmark way, whether you liked him or didn't like him, elected in, with states like Indiana, North Carolina, sta- states that no president and carried no Democratic president since Lyndon Johnson. I always say Lind- from Lyndon Johnson to Barack Obama is a pretty big Democratic Party. Right. Um, so you saw that and you thought, hmm, like, if there was going to be a moment, maybe this would be it. Historic first African-American president, right, elected with states, a, a coalition of states that seemed to break the, 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 the deadlock of Bush v. Gore. Um, and yet, you know, he will leave office as one of the most polarizing presidents. And his allies would argue that's not his fault. I would argue it, some of it's his fault. Some of it was sort of built in. But the system has gotten worse over the eight years, more gridlocked over the the last eight years. And if you think that either President Trump or President Clinton with a divided Congress, because that's almost certainly what either of them would have, if they are going to make things better, not worse, I I would urge you to reconsider that. We see see bipartisanship dying this writhing death where, you know, guys who here we work with here at CSIS, people who we look up to, Sam Nunn, Bill Brock, they couldn't or wouldn't want to exist in this environment where they were reaching across the aisle, getting things done. And in this environment, journalists have to recalibrate as well, of course. One of the things that you've said is, you know, journalism isn't dying, but it's changing faster than most people understand. Mm -hmm. And what do you mean by that? And how do you um, bring that to your everyday job? Well, so I, this isn't my theory, but a guy named Eric Rideholm, who's the um, executive producer of Pardon the Interruption, Tony and uh, Mike, Wilb- Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon show on ESPN, is a, is a really smart, thoughtful guy about news and, and how it works. And he, he long ago, years and years ago, told me that basically you can separate news into three buckets. What, so what, now what? You know, essentially, obviously we're oversimplifying, but but let's just say for we we as an industry spent 99.9 percent of our resources, time, energy, mind share on the what from time immemorial until 10 years ago. Again, these are rough estimates. Um, But I, I think increasingly this goes back to the whole the desire for analysis and the desire for news being almost married at the same time. I think increasingly uh, what I, the space I try to occupy is the so what and the now what. Now what? Where do we go from here? So what? Why does this matter? I think the best journalist, Bob, obviously d- does this. Uh, you contextualize it. You tell pe- you don't just tell people this happened. You tell them why it happened. Some of that's natural, but I think we have to push more in that regard. I think some people, including within the Post, aren't thrilled at my conception of news. The thing that I would say about it is – I don't ever want the what to go away. You need the what. The what it, that that's like me being an arm and being like I don't really need my spine. I'll just go with the arm, right? Of course, you need the backbone. Without the what, so what and now what? It's not a thing. We need that news gathering. My argument is we need a more equitable sharing of resource in terms of how much do we devote to each of these things? How much time and resource do we devote to finding the what out? How much do we devote to the so what and the now what? Um, 
it it was 99-1. I think it's probably 70-30 now on the what side. I think it should be about 50-50. I don't know that that will come anytime soon, uh, though we're, we're clearly moving in that direction. The argument I always make is like we, we want to uh, reflect what readers, listeners, users are telling us that they want, which is they want their news and their analysis served up. So if we can get t- together, if we can offer that in a way that is consistent with our Washington Post brand, with what I try to do personally, that's the important thing. I mean, the danger there, of course, is what Bob is talking about, which is like you serve up news and analysis, and the analysis is essentially, well, Democrats are always bad or Republicans are always bad. You have to stay away from that, but I just mean in terms of timing and in terms of the way we conceptualize stories and how we're going to cover them. I I think that is rapidly changing. And do you have to let me just one thought yeah. occurred to me. Uh, do you have to label the commentary part, the analysis part, as commentary and analysis? I mean, if you're writing a news story, do you do you print the facts? Uh, in, in standard type and then italicize the <laughs> yeah. commentary. Uh, I, We've we I mean look uh, I worry less about that online uh, but the newspaper still struggles with like how do you label things um, what I would say is I think our industry and, and me included uh, suffered for a very long time under the idea that um, tone and voice equaled bias and they don't I mean I write with a, a significant amount of tone and voice um, but I don't. Uh, many people on Twitter would disagree with this, but I don't think that I am biased in in one way or, or the other. Um, <clears throat> but bias to me is I watch a television ad and it's for Donald Trump and I say, well, Republicans are terrible, so that's a bad ad. Tone and voice is I've watched <laughs> 10,000 ads in my time doing this job and that one – whatever it looks like it was on Wayne's World. You can see the boom mic, the audio is bad, there's 50 messages. <laughs> That's, we didn't used to say, this ad looks like it was made in my parents' basement. We right. said, oh, Donald Trump ran an ad today. But I, I think people are fine and want you to, 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 to say, I think that this ad is poorly done. Here's why. Because I'm a big believer in radical transparency as it relates to my journalists. Remember Gary Hart, didn't work out so well for him, but Gary Hart, follow me around with the whole Donna Rice thing. I always say to people, you can absolutely, it, the person who hates me the most, whoever that is, as long as you don't like try to physically harm me, you can you can sit next to me at my desk. You can come with me when I go do things like this. Like you will be bored. <laughs> it is not I we are not in some sort of street strategic cabal plotting ways and like I'm just trying to get it right most of the time that's all and uh does that mean you always get it right no of course cuz we're human but but the great thing about the web is when you get it wrong my belief is I'm okay if I don't want to screw something up every day but I'm okay if we occasionally screw something up as long as we then say, as soon as we possibly can, we screwed this up. Here's why we screwed up. I said in May, just as one quick story, May 2015, I wrote a blog post called Why You Don't Need to Take Donald Trump Seriously in One Very Simple Chart. The chart showed CNN, a CNN poll uh, of Republican, likely Republican voters. Donald Trump's favorability was 32-65. So 32 favorable, 65 unfavorable. My conclusion was when you are 100% known as a candidate— and two-thirds of the people you need to vote for you already don't like you, that's a, 
unsolvable problem because it had always been an unsolvable problem. Okay, fast forward to August. I write a piece titled, Boy Was I Wrong About Donald Trump, in which I make the point, look, to go back to the beginning of what we're talking about politics, everything that I know, and that anyone who, who does this for a living knows, suggested this guy for lots of reasons, but mostly because most of the people he needed to vote for him didn't like him, would lose and in fact would go nowhere. Here's, that's what this piece was based on. Here's why I was wrong. I owe him an apology. And I think that you, I actually think that you benefit from that rather than pretending like, no, I knew that Donald Trump was going to win all along when you can just Google it right up and you can find Chris Eliza, May 2015, why Donald Trump won't win. It's interesting. You know, the environment you're describing is so different than the normal environment where newspaper reporters would be thinking mostly about where is my story going to land in the insane. print edition. It drives me. We still have people who do that, and it drives me bananas. And so, no one cares. So the average user does not care. Good content is good content. I mean, I understand that we've built this thing up about the front page, but I think that I've done fine for myself. The last time I was on the front page of the Washington Post was. To, I, I can't even remember. I think my guess it was an election preview that I got to do with Dan Balls and David Broder before he passed away in 2008. I was part of that, which was amazing. Um, but my point is, is that's not the be all end all anymore. I'm happy when people who work for me do that. But that should not be our goal. Our, should, our goal should be write interesting, informative, in the moment content that speaks to people who are looking for analysis or news, right? If that makes it on the front page or the front page of Yahoo or Matt Drudge, great. But but we can only control what we can control. And so you're trying to get your staff and in your view of how you're approaching the news, you're trying to become, instead of worrying about where the item's going to land, you're trying to make it the best it can be through involvement in headlines, mm -hmm. involvement in enriched media, multimedia yep. experiences. Um, that's a big departure. Yeah, um, I always say, and this will seem trite uh, to some people, but I always say <clears throat> we should spend, before you write, especially for the younger people who work with me, before you write, think of the tweet. Now, you will say like, oh, it's the worst of journalism. Let me explain. <clears throat> I don't mean think of the most salacious thing that you can say to get people to click on it. What I mean is Twitter, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in limiting things to 140 characters forces the mind to really hone in. You don't have 10 paragraphs. You don't have five minutes of live TV to go through. You got to figure out the one thing that you think is the most important or interesting or shareable, right? So think of that. And let's put that somewhere near the top of whatever you're writing. I think we oftentimes freight it down with all this B matter. Uh, Howard Dean, the former Vermont governor who ran for, no one cares. Just say, Howard Dean, you can put the other stuff down below, but let's get the thing that's the most interesting right there at the top. So I think it actually helps um, focus your mind on, okay, there's a lot, because we've all been trained to do the kind of like big buildup, big buildup, big well, buildup, exactly. and news. And that, I think, or, or piece of analysis that's insightful. And you know what you're doing? You're going back to the basis of how to be a reporter. When I worked at the Star-Telegram, our city editor, most, most newspapers in those days, uh, the police reporter didn't write the stories. He'd go out. He was on the scene. There was no typewriter out there. He'd call in the facts. Somebody on the rewrite desk uh, wrote, yeah. wrote the story, you know, and they put the, the police reporter's byline. Our city editor always made us 
compose the lead. He, you know, he said, I want my reporters to know what the lead is right. when they call in here. And so the first thing you do when you get out of the car at a car wreck is you're saying to yourself, what's the lead here? You're not right. saying, hey, it's a car wreck. And, car accidents and, happen but, frequently on American roadways. Yeah. Like, you know, that's but fine. But he was but... <laughs> teaching us to think right. like a reporter. That's right. And I remember once at CBS, we had a young reporter that <laughs> came back from some story and somebody said what happened and he launched into this well first he said and then second and and finally the the evening news producer said i don't need a transcript here what i need <laughs> right. is for you to tell me what's important and that's what you're saying and with this a, is, this with is, a tweet this what's is, what's the lead here and this is what we're talking about trusted guides through the noise what's important tell me what matters tell me what I mean, the amount of things written about Donald Trump on a daily basis, you, you, there's thousands. So if you want people to read your thing, you need to think carefully about what what is the piece of insight analysis and then put that thing as close to the top as you can because otherwise no one's going to read 10 paragraphs about Donald Trump because there's 10 million paragraphs about Donald Trump out there. Chris, Alyssa, you are doing some great work out there. And you are really a a major part, I think, the kind of work you're doing of of kind of this new communications landscape that we have here. The Post, uh, I think, uh, under Marty Barron, uh, is doing it the way that newspapers should be doing it right now. And uh, the way you guys are laying things out, it's it's a lesson for everybody across across the landscape. Thank you so much. As, as you know, I think uh, I uh, you are a titan in this uh, industry. Well, I don't so know I about appreciate that. I appreciate getting the chance to sit and, and, and talk with you. Thank you both. For Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. But wait, that's not all, Bob. It was a pleasure having the very groovy Chris Saliza with us today. Of course, our listeners couldn't visualize Chris's grooviness. But I'll say this. The man had some funky blue glasses and was dressed in a splendidly elegant gray suit. We dig that sort of thing on our podcast. After all, Bob does wear purple socks every day. So thanks to Chris for bringing the funk. Speaking of funky, thanks to our friend Aaron Neville for providing our podcast with the best music around. His new record, Apache. It's going to win a Grammy. I just know it. Must be deserved 
Sometimes life throws a curtain Rolling with the punches Follow all your hunches We must go the extra mile And always muster up a smile And never know where life will take us Is it waiting just to break us When we go over faith alone Sometimes it's hard to believe What's going on? Oh, what's going on? Show me a sign mm, if you're out there. If you hear me, oh, 'cause it's been so hard. It's been hard. Was burning in the sky. You never know what's coming. It's turning on a dime. Oh, the world will keep on running. It's spinning all the time. You gotta keep on moving, or you'll be on the other side. And I know where life will take us. Is it waiting just to break us? When we go home, faith alone. Sometimes it's hard to believe what was going on. Gotta keep moving on. Oh, oh, If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, visit us at csis.org, and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.